0: Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, we take a vastly different angle on the potential new Texans head coach. We delve into some potential bad news for the Rockets, tell a feel-good Astros story, and bring in a special guest to remember a Rockets coaching legend. Joining me, as always, my co-host, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen... The first hour of the podcast is breaking down the NFL Pro Bowl game.
1: You want to start? Yeah, wake me up when the Super Bowl comes on, (laughs) Roberts. I can't tell you how many years it's been since I have watched a Pro Bowl. No, I kid you not. It has been years since I have actually turned on the TV or tried to stream a Pro Bowl game. What, wasn't Matt Schaub the MVP of the Pro Bowl? Oh, no, wait. That was back in, what, 2011, 2012. That's, that's probably how long it's been, actually. Yeah, I, I don't even think <laughs> I, I watched that one. I love
0: Conan O'Brien's tweet on Sunday. He said, everyone talks about the Super Bowl. What what about the excitement of not watching the Pro Bowl? <laughs> yeah, that's about right. He He's definitely got that one worded right. Well, I hope everybody caught our Monday morning podcast with Andy Rio, where we got into the Levy Smith story. I also asked Andy about the other coaches and GMs hired around the NFL. He previewed the Super Bowl. Uh, we don't need to preview the Super Bowl because let's let's continue the Levy conversation. And let me ask you, Stephen, what
1: was your reaction to Levy Smith as the next Texans coach? Well, I think out of this batch of names, Robert, he was probably the best option. Now. What what I didn't like, though, is once again, the Texans, it, it's like they don't know how to conduct a search. They puzzle me. I mean, why wasn't Lovie Smith mentioned at the beginning of the search, if, if, he was, if, if he was the candidate of their choice now, if he was the best option out there, why wasn't his name thrown in the hat at the very beginning? You know, why did you wait until you interviewed all these others and you interviewed Josh McCown again and basically tab him as the front runner, whether it's, you know, unofficially or not. That's what everybody seemed to be leaning toward. And then all of a sudden out of left field, here comes Lovey Smith, a guy who was your defensive coordinator. He has had coaching experience with the Bears and the Buccaneers. He's got some college experience, not a great experience, but nonetheless, he is probably, as, as far as coaching experience, the best option that the Texans had with all they interviewed, except maybe Brian Flores. So... The only puzzlement I have, Robert, as I as I scratch my head once again with the Texans brass, is why Lovey Smith now? You just
0: perfectly wrapped up everybody on Texas Twitter right there. You did it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly don't think it's a bad hire. I think, it, as I said, you know, maybe with the exception of Brian Flores, although I, I think, it. you know, I was high on him at first until, you know, of course, the lawsuit certainly didn't help him. And then some other things about his personality that came out. Maybe he wouldn't have been a good fit. So, you know, in hindsight, might have been better not to hire him. But it's just the whole process that makes me shake my head, Robert. People might forget, Levy
0: was nearly hired by Bob McNair back in 2014 to replace Kubiak. So, you know, it's a guy that they've thought about in the past, the, the organization. And according to those in the know, he made a strong impression on the McNair family at the time. Um, I'd like to be contrarian for a second, Stephen, though. Uh, are you ready for this? I'm, I'm going to go the, the, the other way. You ready? Sure, why not? Go for it. So in the last two years, it appears the racist McNair family might have hired two black head football coaches, 14 head coaching positions, three African-Americans hired, two of those by the Texans. So there you go with that. Their <laughs> crime and all is the process. You just said it, Stephen, the process. Yeah. And yeah. the idea that the rest of the know-it-all media and fans didn't like the way they went about things and weren't exactly happy with their choice. Meanwhile, 99% of NFL head coaches don't last more than three or four years outside of Andy Reid, Pete Carroll, Belichick, Harbaugh, and Tomlin, who are these brilliant coaches that the media and NFL execs got right. Did they get right? By the way, Reid, Carroll, Belichick, all three of them fired their, right. prior to their current teams. So let's talk about Levy Smith for a second. These guys are kind of disposable, you know, is what I'm saying uh, with, you know, most of them not lasting more three, three or four years. But let's talk about Levy for a second. In nine seasons with the Chicago Bears, Levy won 11, 11, 13, and 10 games. Four seasons with 10 or more victories. Throw away his first season, which is always a good idea to do in a rebuild. Yeah. Never won less than seven games in nine seasons. Never less than seven games in nine seasons. Who was he winning with? His starting quarterbacks were Hall of Famers Rex Grossman, Jay Cutler, Chad Hutchinson, Kyle Orton, and Brian Greasy. Hey, the dude took Rex Grossman to a Super Bowl. Again, Rex Grossman. Did he struggle in Tampa Bay in his two years there? Yes. But his QBs, rookie Jameis Winston, better known as Jameis Pick 6 Winston, and coaching legend Josh McCown. Hate on Easterby, hate on McNair. Hate on Casario all you want, but at least put into context two important facts. The Texans gave a long, long long-time, well-liked veteran assistant a chance to prove himself in a year that the organization could afford to experiment. And when Cully didn't prove up to it, they hired a well-proven NFL head coach who's helped take two teams to a Super Bowl. Remember the Rams? He was the defensive coordinator back 22 years ago. And somebody that did a hell of a job as their defensive coordinator this past year and is beloved by the locker room. So there you go. I I, I did it. I went contrarian, you know, I, I gave it my best effort, Steve.
1: <laughs> well, you, you definitely summed it up the, the other way quite well, Robert. And as I recall, Lovey Smith's last season with the bears, he went 10 and six and he was fired. Now, I mean, if the Texans go 10 and six under Lovey Smith, I don't think you're going to see him getting fired anytime soon, but you are right, Robert. It's, I mean, a lot of these coaches are transition-type coaches. You know, Levy's in his 60s. I don't know that he's going to be coaching for the next five or ten years as a head coach. But certainly, I hope, in, you know, within the next two or three years, and not just give him a one-year thing like you did Cully, depending, of course, on how things happen. If the Texans can get some players around him, you know, or halfway decent or even better, then I think Levy will do a good job. And yeah, you can sit and criticize his defense was near the bottom in a lot of categories this year. But let's face it, you know, if they'd had an offense that wouldn't have had them on the field so much, they might have actually done better. You know, the the takeaway ratio was better. The intensity was better. Again, they, they've just got to get some players in place, especially in the secondary, I think, to make it better.
0: What we don't know is if the Texans were seriously gonna hire Flores and and they had gone about their process and done everything until that lawsuit with the NFL. We don't know what happened behind the scenes there. Hiring a coach with a lawsuit against the NFL is not something that the McNair family would have been able to stomach. Any McNair, Cal, Bob, any of them, they weren't gonna go against the NFL with the Brian Flores hire. So they were left with their other two candidates and maybe Levy Smith came back in and said, hey, you know, you're on the clock right now. There's no black coaches that have been hired. I can do this job. Look at what I've done in the past. I'm beloved by the locker room. He might've brought in some signed affidavits by by the guys in the locker room. We don't know, but you, it's, it's so easy from the outside to say this was idiotic. And, and as, as far as the Josh McCown thing, you can hate it, but how many times In the NFL, Stephen, do we say these guys, they do, everybody does the same thing over and over again. Nobody wants to think outside the box. And the Texans with McCown, they were thinking outside the box. And, you know, he gets slammed because of the Easterby connection, but he he was considered a really smart backup quarter. You don't stay in the league for 20 years as a backup if you're not smart. And, And he was considered somebody that had the potential to be a head coach. It, 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 but in the end, they didn't they didn't even do it, but they kept interviewing him and they might have been interviewing him for the thought that maybe they wanted him on the staff at some point And he's probably going to be on the staff.
1: Well, you know what? If you think about it, Robert, maybe the time to hire McCown would have been last year, not this year. After you, you know, you go with David Culley for a year. It was a fiasco, apparently. And then this year, you're going to go with another guy who has even less coaching experience I think if you were going to hire McCown, you should have done it last year. Maybe the guy would have wowed everybody and the Texans would have been eight and eight or something. But to hire him this year, I just didn't see it. Now, I think, you know, with time, Josh McCown could be a very good coach and he may be a great head coach one day. We don't know. But the fact is that I just didn't think the timing was right this year, that somebody like Lovey Smith is a better hire. And And let's not gloss over the fact, Robert, that Pep Hamilton is going to be the new offensive coordinator. I think that's a good move as well. Listen, Stephen, if you were going
0: to argue against somebody with experience that was 60 years old, that was hired as head coach, I'd been like, what? Stephen's doing what? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Stephen might have just had a birthday. That's a little hint for everybody out there. Um, Just, you know, Justin Reed on Lovey. He said he was extremely qualified, very knowledgeable, brings out the best in all of his players, emphasizes the details. Justin said, I like him. I know the locker room likes him. He has the respect of everybody. He's done it a long time at a high level, doesn't play favorites. Everybody wants to play hard for him and make him proud. And Justin Reed doesn't have to say that, Stephen, because Justin Reed might not be a Texan next year.
1: Well, that's right. That's a good point. He he certainly doesn't. But I think, you know, certainly on the defensive end, a lot of those guys loved Lovey. Yeah, no, uh, you know, play on words intended there but they did. I mean, he's certainly a guy that players love to play for. And getting back to Pep Hamilton, you know, on the offensive side of the ball, you've got maybe the defensive consistency, uh, but you also have a a guy who was working with Davis Mills. And as the season went on, Davis Mills got better thanks to Pep Hamilton. So hopefully Pep Hamilton will will step in and uh, continue to improve Davis Mills and the offense overall. And uh, Lovey as the coach, you know, whether he's going to call the defensive signals or hire a defensive coordinator, I guess, remains to be seen. But, you know, at least from this election standpoint, Robert, it it is, as you said, it's, it's hard to get too upset about it. In the
0: NFL, it's better to be lucky a lot of times than good. And, hey, you can hate the process for whatever you want to hate the process. But if Lovey turns out to work, a lot of people are going to eat crow. And there's no thought that Lovey isn't competent at his job. He did, like I said, a fantastic job with the Chicago Bears. He's well-respected. He's beloved. Interesting guy. He doesn't allow his assistant coaches to cuss at, and practice, which is like something that you you do not see. And this goes back to his days with the Bears. John Hoke. I heard a story that John Hoke uh, was applying to be Lovey's assistant coach. And somebody said, hey, John. By the way, you can't, you know, do this and say that out at practice because Levy doesn't put up with it. And, you know, it, it it's it's not just that he did pretty well where he was, but he got the most out of what he, what he got out. I mean, look at the guys that he had to take as a quarterback and make a team out of. And, you know, you can say, well, things were a little bit different. There wasn't the emphasis on the quarterback then. I don't know about that. The quarterbacks that were going to the Super Bowl at that time were pretty darn good. Typically, I mean, you've got to go back to like a Trent Dilfer, maybe. in two. Th- we, you have a, an outlier every decade or so. But usually, if you're going to get to a Super Bowl, you've got to have a quarterback.
1: Well, especially now. And I, I think you and Andy talked about that the other day. It, it's a lot harder to do that now than it was when Lovie Smith was coaching the Bears. And some people can point to his time at Tampa Bay. You know, he only, he's only spent two years there. And as you said, quarterback Jameis Winston didn't quite pan out to begin with you know the front office was bad in tampa bay you could point to his college experience at illinois but come on when was illinois when was the last time illinois was a end of the discussion for a national championship i mean they're in the big 10 with iowa michigan ohio state and those guys so i'm not so sure that you can really compare college to pro in that
0: respect and i think andy might have said something to that that you know uh, college and pro, it, it's apples and oranges. So yeah, it is absolutely. He's right. It's not a way to judge it. And the other thing that came out, like we expected, Pep Hamilton promoted offensive coordinator from quarterbacks coach. The only other time Pep Hamilton was an OC was with the Colts from 2013 to 2015. And the two years Andrew Luck was totally healthy, the Colts offense under Pep was 15th the first year and then third third in the league that second year now that's with andrew luck but what's interesting is lovey smith Stevens says he wants a run first offense even though pep ran the past heaviest team in the league with the colts what do you think about that
1: well david cully wanted to run first offense i mean that's fine but you've got to get some backs in there that can run the ball so you know that that is a big need that the texans have got to fill this offseason You know, if you're going to be a run-first offense, you've got to have guys that can carry the ball, you know, and then there's the offensive line that you have to straighten out. So, hey, no mistake, lovey has got his work cut out for him, but, you know, with some draft choices coming in, who knows what'll happen in free agency, at least hopefully the Texans will have a little better look next year. I feel like the Texans' offensive philosophy
0: should probably depend on their opponent. Not sure if I'm a big fan of stating, hey, this is what we're doing each week, especially when... There's no history yet of them being good at anything. I think you do the Patriots philosophy and and that's whatever you figure is going to work that particular week against that particular defense with your personnel. That's what you do.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. For sure.
0: The other move that was made that I paid a little bit of attention to, I thought was interesting was George Warhop is the Texans new offensive line coach warhop was the o-line coach in jacksonville the last three seasons he worked under levy and tampa in 14 and 15 you want experience with an o-line coach yes warhop has been an nfl offensive line coach every year since 1996 26 seasons so this guy has got real experiences he's, he's in his early 60s he was with the rams cardinals cowboys 49ers and browns along with like i said tampa and jacksonville the good news steven is the experience the bad news is He's been on a lot of losing coaching staffs.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess that doesn't help him. And what I would really like to see, Robert, is an offensive line coach that can put an offensive line together based on, you know, a player's best skill set. And instead of this jockeying and, and hopping around, you know, is Titus Howard a tackle or a guard? You know, is this person a center or a right guard? I just would like to see some continuity where you can get guys in there that can play to their strengths. And then be consistent, of course, you know injuries happen, and that that obviously makes a difference when you 're trying to build cohesiveness with an offensive line, but in the Texans case, there's just been way too much jockeying around, and I'd like to see some more consistency and just putting guys where they fit the best to make that line better yeah, he's
0: going to show me a lot when he figures out where a, a Titus Howard should be, or you know that and and he's going to have to show me that this line is improving as weeks are going along. Cause there are times in the last few years where you're not even seeing the improvement from week to week or from month to month in the offensive line. We'll see how all of that goes. But I mean, Steven, I, I did it. I made a way for the Texans to look good at all of this. I did my best. I'm, I'm going to take my bow and I'm going to tip my cap. And I'm going to say, do I believe all this to you guys? <laughs> I'm not sure, but I, I, I do believe that Lovey's a good guy and Lovey's a good coach.
1: Look, uh, you know, with the state of the Texans as they are, you got to take every little bit you can get, Robert. Any kind of positive we can bring out of it, let's go for it. I mean, hey, it's the off season. When next season gets underway, then we can sit and poke holes in everything we just said. Or we can gloat and say, hey, remember that podcast on, what's today, February 8th that we're recording this, when we said all these things? So, you know, it's it's probably going to be one or the other. But right now, we might as well just say, at at this point in the game, that Lovie Smith is a good hire. All
0: right, let's move to the Rockets. And I, I I had to just go to my Twitter timeline to check the Woj bomb area because you never know what's going on. The story in the NBA, as everybody knows, is the trade deadline. No word at this particular moment as we record Tuesday night on an Eric Gordon deal. But far more important than that, this potential Ben Simmons, James Harden trade that might be coming to fruition, according to many of the most trusted NBA insiders. Brian Windhorst is kind of pretty knowledgeable, and he thinks this is going to happen. Stephen, believe it or not, I kind of think this is bad news for the Rockets. Why? Because the Rockets' best hope for draft picks from New Jersey, or Brooklyn, I should say, was for James Harden to quickly deteriorate under a huge contract that he's about to sign this offseason and if you're the Rockets you want the Nets to be buried under an aging Durant and Harden Harden aging much quicker than Durant in the next couple of years but with the Simmons deal they get a younger all-star caliber player who extends their competitive window over the next few years yes Simmons isn't good in the playoffs I know so it might not mean championships but that doesn't matter for the Rockets the way I see it it makes them better for longer during the regular season, because not only is Simmons younger, but now it's easier for the Nets to draw another young superstar if they want to move on from Kyrie, because they aren't looked at as this aging team. Do you agree?
1: You may be right, Robert. And yeah, that I certainly don't think Kyrie Irving is going to be there next year. Ben Simmons is younger, but you know, I kind of my first thought when I started hearing those trade rumors banding about as well, you're you're trading one underperforming player for another. The only difference. is... Is Ben Simmons, uh, you know, he he is younger, so that's a big a plus for the Nets. Yeah, I I mean, Harden leaving the Nets, you didn't really want that. You kind of wanted him, as you said, to stay, so that maybe the Nets wouldn't be quite as good. But uh, getting younger and then getting rid of Irving, which I I still believe that's going to happen after next season, yeah, might not bode so well for the Rockets. Just a thought.
0: I I don't know if I'm right about that, but it's something that I think about as this deal. Looks like it's more and more impending. It looks like James Harden is going to the 76ers, but we'll see. It might have happened by the time you guys listen to this on Wednesday. Now, the Rockets. Let me get to what I'm seeing from them, and, it, and it's not good. They continue to get blown out more games than not. The thing that really bothers me, Stephen, and I was watching the Pelican games Tuesday night, and, and, and it really was frustrating to see a defense that looked confused that didn't look like they know, knew where to go, that was just giving up open lanes to the basket. This team looks totally lost on defense, and we're over halfway through the season. I get that they're young, but we're over halfway through the season. These are still adult guys, and a lot of them are in their mid-20s. Not everybody is 18 or whatever you want to make it out to, and pretty soon, Jalen's, you know, we're by the time people hear this, he's going to be 20 years old. So... Um, I, I just I just do not like what I see from Silas. His rotations continue to be kind of screwy, guys that he brings in in certain points and how he mixes guys together. And, you know, the more I watch it unfold, the more I just go, I don't think he's the long-term answer. And, you know, it, it's best for the Rockets to move on. And I hope this is his final season, but maybe they're still in love with him. And you, you just the expectation level is still so low that I don't know if he gets fired, but I I can't believe how poor they look and how lost they look on defense.
1: Well, I've been saying that even since last season, Robert. I, I just, you know, and I know it was kind of early then, but I have just not felt for a long time that Steven Silas is the right fit for this team, especially when you're trying to develop such young players. And listen, I'll tell you what they need to do. They need to borrow their former assistant coach, Kelvin Sampson, to come over there and conduct a clinic on how to play defense. If you watch the Cougars game on Sunday against Cincinnati, now listen, that was some defense. I mean, talking about young guys trying to learn how to play defense, well, Kelvin Sampson's got a bunch of college guys playing some darn good defense, so why can't the Rockets' 19- and 20-year-olds at least play halfway decent defense on a consistent basis? That's what I want to know. Yeah, they're the same age. It's the same age of guys that are playing for the Cougars.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and that are playing for the Rockets. But one of them looks like, one of the teams looks like they know exactly where they, they should be on defense. And the other team just looks completely and totally lost. And it shouldn't be that way when you've played more than half the season at this point, right? We're we're, we're over halfway through. Am I I right about that? Yeah,
1: You're you're definitely around the halfway mark of the season. And, you know, by now you want to at least see some consistent improvement. And what's frustrating is that, you know, the Rockets have some good games and you think that they're starting to turn a corner and then they get blown out by teams like the Spurs and, uh, you know, the Pelicans, they've got blown out by the Spurs, what, twice in the span of a couple of weeks? I mean, it's frustrating. And I'll, honestly, Robert, you know, me living in Austin, I don't get a lot of the Rockets games on television because I don't, you know, have, uh, what is it? Uh,
0: AT&T Sports.
1: Yeah. at and Sports, right. I don't even get that here in Austin. So unless the Rockets are on national television, which they certainly are not most much of this season, I kind of have to rely on the radio broadcast. And I'll be honest, I just cannot make myself listen or watch this team play because like you, Robert, I'm just to the point of frustrated that these young guys, you know, as young as they are, just aren't making the kind of improvement that you'd at least like to see a little improvement through your first season, wouldn't you? Yeah, Josh Christopher is
0: maybe the only one that you really see a week-to-week, a month-to-month improvement. There's going to be some setbacks. or some games where he might not look as good. But overall, you see his shooting get better. You see his decision-making get better. All of those things, he looks way better than Jalen Green, which is just hard to believe. You know the guy that you picked second in the draft and everybody sees as a future superstar. And I'm not saying Jalen Green can't get there, but he's picking up things really slow. I hear he's not picking up things slow. I hear he's very studious or whatever, but it's just not happening on the court. The other thing that really bothers me, Stephen, when I watch these games, Jalen Green and Christian Wood are selfish uh, and they don't like each other. And I, I don't know if Jalen's selfish, Christian Wood is selfish, and the two guys... When one of them has the ball, they don't look to the other one. There, there, there is video proof of that. You know, you you see people tweeting out, here's Jalen Green. Christian Wood's wide open, is waving his hands, or vice versa. And it's almost like they're freezing each other out. And look, I, I I am seriously tired of watching Christian Wood. I don't think he's getting dealt because I don't think there's a good market for him. And I don't think the Rockets are just going to give him away but i i i do not like what i see from christian wood on a nightly basis because he doesn't play defense he he's kind of a ball hog he's kind of selfish you know he's got talent he's got physical ability and you can see the things that he does and he puts up numbers but they're kind of empty stats because of all the things that he does wrong out there on the floor and it's frustrating that we're going to have to go ahead and watch this over the next few months because he's not the future and he takes away minutes from guys that you think are the future and he kind of sets a bad example out there for him.
1: Yeah, it's the last thing you need when you're trying to develop chemistry. And we know that Christian Wood is selfish. I mean, he's exhibited this time and time again over the last couple of seasons with the Rockets. And even before that, you know, it was with the Pistons and playing overseas and the way he bounced around. Yeah, it's unfortunate. You're right, Robert. I don't think he is going to get dealt, you know, because I just don't know what kind of a market they could, you know, the Rockets could get for him. He's shown some flashes, but it's not just about putting the ball in the basket. And and some of the defensive skills, it's that unselfish type of mentality that he is lacking. And you've got to have it out there on the court. You know, and it really bothers me when you see guys like Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green, K.J. Martin, and those guys, they're watching that example. All right. Let me talk about the NBA draft because I'm tired of talking about how bad the
0: Rockets are at this point. And I want to talk about what I've been seeing. And it depends on what week it is, but my thoughts on the guys at the top of the draft Change by the week. I may be finally getting on the Chet Holmgren train. His three-point shooting percentage as of yesterday is over forty-six percent. Forty-six percent. Remember, he's about seven foot one, and he blocks shots. Everybody talks about Jabari shooting, but Chet's better. Jabari's a little over forty percent. Now, I'm not saying that's what we're going to see in the NBA, but it's real interesting, and he's picking things up really quickly. I was talking to our old co-host, RG, and he asked me a really good question. He said, best case scenario, well, I say best case scenario, the Rockets have only a 40% chance because you look at the numbers and that's right. the way it is to get in that top three of the draft. And I really love Paolo and I really love Jabari and I really love Chet, but I believe they all have a much higher ceiling also than Jalen Green because of their size, because of their size size, makes their defensive ability have a better ceiling. And Jalen Green, I just don't see a scenario where he's more than an average defender. I think I've told you that before, Steven. So RG asked, if the Rockets were not in the top three, would I trade Jalen and the Rockets pick to move into the top three? And I'm going to make some enemies here, but I'd say absolutely yes. Yes, I would, because I think those three guys have a higher ceiling to be a better player and the object is to get the better players, and I don't see anybody after those three guys in this draft with that ceiling to maybe be the superstar, and that's what you're looking for.
1: Wow, well, what does that say for your scouting department? then they obviously didn't do a good job of scouting somebody like Jalen Green, but you know what if you've got a seven foot one guy who can block shots and shoot three pointers um what, what's what's rafael stone's number let me talk to him because yeah <laughs> you to try to put him in position to get him yeah I, I mean it's an interesting question you know then you're trading a guy who's only been in the league a year for a guy who yeah he's done well in college but he still hasn't proven in the nba i don't know robert i'm not sure i'm i'm not sure i have the nerve to pull the trigger on that at least not right now
0: yeah the deal is you're you're probably if you're not in the top three it just doesn't look like there's guys in this draft with the ceiling of being a superstar. And that's what you're looking for. And that's what every every NBA GM wants. That's what changes your franchise. And you know how you get to be really good really fast in the NBA is you get a big guy that can do some things, especially on the defensive end. And, you know, Paolo's got some defensive flaws, but the other two guys can do stuff on the defensive end. And we saw what Evan Mobley does. He changes the entire Cleveland Cavaliers defense with what he can do and i'm not saying that a Chet Homering can do that i don't think Jabari can but what a big man does is he has the ability much more than somebody that's 6 foot 4 to carry you to the playoffs. Bradley Beal just got injured. He's out for the year. Everybody, you know, was like, "Oh, I'd love to get my hands on Bradley Beal, but Bradley Beal, Stephen doesn't turn the Wizards into a playoff team on a yearly basis he cannot carry them in the same way that we've seen James Harden carry teams in the same way we see Giannis and LeBron those are bigger guys with bigger bodies and it's not like Harden's a lot bigger than Jalen Green but he just he has the build and that's my concern with Jalen Green it's not just that he's six foot four he doesn't have the build and that's what I keep bringing up he doesn't have the chest he doesn't have the butt. I'm somebody that's skinny witty guy. I I d I can't get that weight. I can't get weight in the butt. I can't get weight in my chest. It doesn't happen. You're kind of built similar to me, Steven. You understand what right. I'm talking about. Yeah. It's yeah. really hard if you do not have that potentially in your genetic code. And it's and, and then go out there and find somebody that's a really good defender that's six foot four in the NBA. Period. I mean, there's Drew Holiday. There's, some, there's you can find a guy here or there that's Really good, and Chris Paul does a lot with what he's got, but Chris Paul doesn't change anything, and it's just you can't, it's hard to find that guy that's really going to be good defensively, and and that means you've got to be an all world guy at six foot four. You've got to be Steph Curry to carry your team and be a superstar. So Jalen Green, in my mind, could be a good number two player down the road, but I don't see him being a number one on a championship team.
1: Well, certainly not at this point, and. You know, maybe the best-case scenario is that the the Rockets can finish in the top three. Chad Lundgren's available. You take him, and then you have both players, and maybe you can build around it. But to me, there there are two things, Robert. They need clear on-court leadership, and they need superstars. And right now, they don't have either.
0: And by the way, you you see constant anxiety over the Rockets draft position on Rockets Twitter. Don't worry about it. They're going to lose, and they're going to lose a lot. And let me make this point so people understand how much— the NBA has leveled leveled out the draft odds. And and I feel like I I do this all the time on Twitter, but maybe I haven't done it on the podcast. If they drop from third worst to fourth worst record in the NBA, there's only a 4% less chance that they drop out of the top four and only a three and a half percent less chance that they drop out of the top three. It is so difficult to get those top three picks, you know, based on trying to lose because the best that you can do is a 40%. And that's number one, number two, or number three worse than the NBA. And your odds don't get a hell of a lot better, or I should say a hell of a lot worse to get those top three picks if you drop to four or five. In other words, you know, it, it just doesn't matter a whole lot. I guess we'll see some more teams getting worse who might be selling off at the trade deadline. But, you know, I <laughs> I'm assuming Eric Gordon might be gone soon too. And Stephen, they don't win games unless Eric Gordon not only plays, but plays well.
1: Well, that's right. I think I saw a stat, you know, if this was two or three weeks ago, and I think Clutch fans put it out, that when Eric Gordon scores at least 19 points a game or more, they were like 9-1 and one at one point. So obviously, when Eric Gordon is in the game and he's scoring, the Rockets are winning. But yeah, as you said, he might be dealt at some point. So the Rockets are definitely going to lose their share of games, and it's just going to Really, it's going to come down to the fact that, you know, you're not going to have the luck of the coin flip of Ralph Sampson and Hakeem Olajuwon at this point, the way they've changed the draft and how they conduct it. So, yeah, three, four, two, it's not going to be a whole lot different.
0: You mentioned luck of the coin flip and Olajuwon and Sampson. That's the next thing we got to talk about because the Rockets lost one of their great coaches this week who was also an all-time great NBA coach, Bill Fitch, who's still called... The Houston area home, lived out in Conroe. Uh, Fitch ranks number 10th all-time in NBA victories, was twice NBA coach of the year, and coached the third most games, the third most games in NBA history. Bill Fitch, Hall of Fame coach. Before he came to the Rockets, he was the head coach of the expansion Cleveland Cavaliers in 1970, and in just six years, led them to a conference championship. Then he took over a 29-win Celtics team, And in his first year, he beat the 81 Rockets team in the NBA Finals. He came to a 14-win Rockets team in 1983. And by his third season, he had the Rockets in the NBA Finals after pulling off that huge upset over Magic and Cream's Lakers in the conference finals. Listen to what some of his contemporaries had to say about the Hall of Famer. You're going to hear Sampson, and then that's Ralph Sampson, not Kelvin. (laughs) Ralph Sampson, and then Lenny Wilkins. And then ex-Rockets coach Kevin McHale. And finally, Larry Bird. He understood the, the process to win.
2: And you can go to multiple teams and build a legacy. Coaches like that are very rare. Bill always wanted to be better. And the guys dubbed him Captain Video because he watched more video than any coach I had ever seen. He was ahead of the game and preparation was as good as any. He didn't leave any stone unturned
0: right
2: now he was very demanding but he made you very accountable and he made everybody on the team very accountable to each other i love him very much the guy's special
0: again those last two voices kevin McHale and larry legend bird called bill fitch the best coach he ever had larry bird said that there's no higher praise and steven before we get to your memories of fitch i gotta share this with you i had a short conversation with houston post rockets beat writer Robert Falkoff, who covered the team from 80 to 95, he was around Fitch and all of those teams that Fitch coached with the Rockets every day of the Fitch tenure.
2: A miraculous shot by Ralph
0: Sampson has given the Houston Rockets a trip to Boston for the NBA world title. Let me start out with you, Robert. What do you remember about Bill when he was hired and, and what kind of guy that Bill Fitch was?
2: Well, a very uh, enigmatic personality. On one hand, he had the Irish dry wit. He could be very, very charming, but also very, very tough, tough tough-minded, and a guy that really wanted everyone around him to be all in the way he was. And that even went for reporters. So just a very Marine-like, old-school personality which served him well in a lot of ways. And then in some ways, you know, it would it would come back to bite him. But he was the right guy for the right time. Uh, just starting out with, you know, he got the job. He knew that Ralph Sampson was coming, Rodney McRae. The next year they were able to draft Olajuwon and Put together this magical run in eighty five, eighty six, and probably my second favorite rocket team was the eighty six team, second only to the ninety fourteen that won the NBA championship. But Bill was was one of a kind. He was, uh, I mean, I had a great relationship with him most of the time. He got mad at me uh, twice. One time when I wrote an article uh, with quoting Ralph Sampson and saying, "Will we practice?" Too long, our practices, we have dead legs. And then he had a habit of when those kind of things would happen, he would ask a player who had made controversial statements to stand up and read the article in front of the team. So he did that one time with Samson, one time with Mitchell Wiggins, who criticized the the offense. And so you could just imagine nowadays uh, how that would go over with players and the Players Association. But that was Bill. He just was a grinder. They would stay up after games, the assistant coaches, I wouldn't feel sorry for them, watching the film until 2, 3 in the morning. And that was the days before charter flights. And so they might have to have a 6 o'clock commercial flight to go somewhere. They'd be up till 2, 3 in the morning watching film. So very, very demanding on himself, but also on his coaching staff and on his players.
0: You talked about him being a drill sergeant. He, he, he was a ex-Marine drill sergeant, in fact. So that, that was his history. And, you know, I'm just curious because he had so much success in Boston. He'd won the championship. Why did he leave Boston? Because that one always made no sense to me because it was just a couple of years after they'd won the championship against the Rockets. And you you, you, you watched that. You'd cover that series.
2: Well, what happens is Bill would come in and, and just because of his, the way he coached. He would wear out his welcome. The players, they would take it for a while. But then after they have success, like Boston won the championship. Well, then the next year in eighty, they won in 81. They beat the Rockets for the championship in well, 82. They lost to Philly 83. They didn't do it ag- again. And Casey Jones, the assistant coach, was more of a laid-back guy. And so I think under the surface, although they didn't really – come out with that I think the players kind of nudge Bill out the interesting thing about though coming to Houston was that uh, the Rockets actually offered that job this was after Dale Harris got fired to Tommy Heinsohn who was a Celtic broadcaster Tommy Heinsohn was going to be the guy and it was all set he came down did a big interview but he got cold feet because of some things that were talked about that He had some unconventional philosophies and the management kind of, I don't know about this. So it ended up that Heinsohn pulled back. And when he did at the 11th hour, that's when the job went to Bill Fitch. So kind of ironic that, you know, another Boston guy was going to get the job, Tommy Heinsohn, and and because he pulled back, uh, it ended up being uh, Bill Fitch.
0: You saw him on a day-to-day basis in Houston, you know, he, he, he wore out his welcome. He was tough. You say all that, but what do you think made him so successful? What did you see about his coaching that worked? I mean, was it the X's and O's thing? Was it his personal relationship with the players and being able to get the most out of them? What do you remember about what worked with him as a coach?
2: He was a tough love guy. I mean, he did he was very very hard on guys. He didn't give them a lot of, you know, praise. His philosophy was it's kind of an animalistic business that you just keep them keep them on edge, keep them on edge and and, and that worked for him to the, you know, as I said, for the most part, especially when they put together that 85-86 run and and went to the finals. Fitch was able to to incorporate His philosophy, his style, his work ethic. I think that's basically what made him successful. He took a guy like Lewis Lloyd, who wasn't a good defensive player, but a great offensive player. And Lou Lou worked hard on defense. He got him to to buy in. Lloyd did a great job on Magic Johnson in the uh, Western Conference Finals in 86. Uh, So, just things like that to be able to bring Wiggins off the bench, he knew. You know, I I go back to, uh, you know, I I talked to Red Arbach when Fitch got hired in Houston. I called him up, and at that time, Red was still able to do interviews and stuff. And he just said, Bill just knows what he's doing. You get him the right pieces, and he's going to win. And he did, for the most part. Like I said, when they lost the three guards, his top three guards, after the 86 season or during, well, Lucas in March of 86 and then, Uh, Lloyd and Wiggins the following year. That is so devastating because you got three guys that are part of your rotation and you've got no compensation. It's like, you know, if you traded those guys, how much you would get back, but you got nothing back. So it just left a gaping hole in the roster and they kept trying to rectify it. And it just really wasn't going to happen. And so it was just his style, his, his belief in, how he did things, the grind, the work ethic, the ability to keep guys uh, motivated for the most part. They call him, you know, a builder, but not a maintainer. And I think that, I think that pretty well holds true. I think that's what he was.
0: Last thing before I let you go, you, you had a really interesting fact because we just, you know, in the last few years, we've lost Charlie Thomas and Ray Patterson, some of the other key figures for those teams. Tell everybody what you texted me after Bill Fitch died.
2: Well, yeah, it just stuck, stuck me because each of those guys—those were the three movers and shakers uh, in the organization in the '80s—and and I just remember, you know, when Charlie died, and and Ray Patterson, I actually, you know, was able to go to Ray's memorial service in 2011, and then Bill, uh, and it was all in the headlines. All three of them died strangely, but true at the age of 89. So you really mourn their passing. All of them were great guys, people that I enjoyed knowing personally and working with. So you mourn them on one side. On the other side, you say, hey, almost 90 years old, all of them. So they all lived a very fruitful and rich life. And if you get to 89 or 90 years old, uh, that's pretty good.
0: I'm back with Steven, and Steven, before I got off the line with Falcoff, he told me that while Fitch coached the Rockets, he lived in a Greenway Plaza building where he could just go across a walkway to the summit. <laughs> so as you can imagine, Fitch practically lived in the summit and had his assistants out there till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning most nights.
1: Yeah, I imagine his family probably totally forgot who he was. And, you know, I, I remember the whole captain video thing. I mean, even back then – they talked about that a lot. And, you know, as I think about Bill Fitch, Robert, and you you alluded to this earlier, but the guy just won. I mean, when you can take the Cleveland Cavaliers, a team that for the most part in the 70s was as much a laughing stock as anybody in the NBA and make them a winner, Bill Fitch just won everywhere he went. I mean, some people just have that it factor and Bill Fitch had it. And, You know, it's amazing. And Robert was saying that the 86 team, as far as he was concerned, was his second favorite team to the 94. I'd have to agree. When I look at that Rockets team of 86, it kind of reminds me of those late 70s teams of the Houston Oilers. You know, the the Oilers were probably better than everybody else except the Pittsburgh Steelers. Well, the Rockets 86 team, they proved they were better than everybody else except the Boston Celtics. They weren't going to beat the Celtics. They were just too good. But beyond that, man, Bill Fitch had them in a position where, you know, if if a couple of things had fallen the other way, the Rockets might have upset the Celtics. I mean, they took him to six games. So, yeah, what a coach. Maybe not always that likable, but he won, and he was dedicated, you know, maybe to a fault, quite frankly. Yeah, Samson
0: got hurt in the series. That didn't help. But, hey, arguably... The best team in NBA history, that 86 Celtics team. They had Bill Walton on the bench.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm just saying that it was kind of like those Steelers teams of the late 70s. I mean, you just, nobody was going to beat them, but at least the Rockets came close to beating the Celtics. And, you know, it's pretty ironic that you have Bill Fitch coaching the Celtics to a championship against the Rockets in 81. And then he turns around and coaches the Rockets in the finals against the 86 Celtics. I mean, (laughs) you just don't hear about that a lot, Robert you forget about the Celtics
0: connections because, you know, we heard McHale earlier, McHale coached the Rockets, Uh, you know, Danny Ainge and some of these other figures from that Celtics era are, are still hanging around Danny Ainge over with Utah. He's looking to make some move with the jazz at the deadline. You've got Mitchell Wiggins who Robert mentioned, you know, the drug suspension, the sad ending to his career with, with the drugs and all of that sort of thing. We got his son over at Golden State who just made the all-star team, controversially made the all-star team. And, and Andrew Wiggins, you've got uh, John Lucas, who's such a huge part of what the Rockets are doing right now and trying to turn things around with them and young guys in the same way that Lucas was around that team, trying to turn everything around back in the you know early 80s. So, you know, just all of that connection. And I got one more great Fitch story for you, Stephen. There's a statue of him at the Hall of Fame. Near the other great coaches and and near James Naismith's statue, that statue of Bill Fitch was paid for $150,000 by Rick Carlisle. Now, if you go back to 1989, Fitch cut Carlisle when he was a player for the New Jersey Nets. The story goes that after Fitch cut him, Carlisle, you know, he goes, "You're you're cut," the gruff Fitch way, and Carlisle started to give a speech thanking Fitch for what he did for him. He's like rehearsing it and then he says it out loud. But then right before he starts to say anything, Fitch stops him and he barks at Carlisle and he goes, wait, I'm not done yet. And then he he offered Carlisle an assistant coaching job. And as they say, the rest is history. And Falcoff reminded me that it was Carlisle who pushed for Fitch with the Hall of Fame committee to get him into Springfield.
1: Well, that just goes to show you you know what a a great judge of character and talent Bill Fitch was. I mean, not just on the court, but he obviously saw something in Rick Carlisle that he would make a good coach. And you know, it's interesting. I mean, you don't hear stories like that very often. And yeah, in the gruff Bill Fitch way, Carlisle thought his his time was done. But yeah, it it's just another testament to the character of Bill Fitch and just the intelligence that he had when it came to the game of basketball. And again, I cannot thank Robert Falcoff enough. He's
0: just a walking encyclopedia of that entire era.
1: He really is. I mean, I remember he, you know, he was with the Houston Post, which of course has uh, been folded for a long time. But, you know, I, I remember his writings in the Houston Post. And I think he even did, um, he was on the pregame show of Rockets Radio back in the 70s and 80s. I used to listen to him. A very distinct voice. I mean, I, I know when I hear Robert Falcoff, I immediately recognize it's him. Yeah, he's got that bottom of the
0: well voice that a, a lot of the, <laughs> Classic uh, Houston sports media guys from that era have John McClain as well, but uh, let's, let's move to the Astros and we're not going to talk about the lockout because who cares? But Steven, did you see the Altuve story this weekend? That's good.
1: I actually did not.
0: So here we go. Belong kitchen is a nonprofit that provides employment for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Why am I talking about belong kitchen? Well, they posted on IG, this, and I quote, One day ago, employee Ellie saw Jose Altuve in the parking lot of a nearby retail center. When Ellie kindly asked if Jose would sign her hat, he deeply regretted that neither of them had a Sharpie. And true hometown hero fashion, Jose immediately offered to drop by work the next day to bring a Sharpie and follow through on her request. He saw Ellie's apron that she was still wearing from work, set his watch alarm to be there, during her shift and left with Ellie saying, if you come, you better bring Correa with you. <laughs> so here's what happened, Stephen. At 1130 a.m., that was all on IG. At 1130 a.m., the next day, Altuve and Correa walked in with autographed baseballs for the staff and a side bat for Ellie. They took pictures with employees and volunteers and gave out hats, T-shirts, and
1: dinner. Wow. Well, you, you think maybe that Correa is changing his mind and maybe he'll stick with the Astros after all? <laughs> no, seriously, that that's a great story, Robert. And, uh, you know, we, we need stories like that, especially with baseball, probably not going to be happening too much anytime soon with the lockout. But Jose Altuve, I mean, we talked about both him and Correa, just not with their on-field exploits as much, you know, but the off-field stuff, too. These are great guys. They do their work in the community, and it's good to see that they're still doing that, you know, even at a time when things are so uncertain. Yeah, we need great stories these days, and oh yeah, oh, it's just so good. And Altuve,
0: oh, what a, what a person to have in the community, and Correa as well. And yeah, hope that he sticks around in the community, but you know, this might be one of those last stories we tell about Carlos Correa and his days in Houston. Uh, I never got a chance to ask you, by the way, Stephen. What you think of the Skeeters' new nickname, the Space Cowboys?
1: I don't like it. I, I mean, of all the names, I, I understand they wanted to stay with the space theme, Robert, but come on. Space Cowboys, really? I mean, I came up with a couple of names that were probably outdated and they weren't going to get used. I, I thought the Sugarland Shuttle would have been a good name, except, you know, the Space Shuttle kind of has a bad knock with some of the accidents they've had. Sugarland Boosters. Yeah, probably another name that that wasn't going to happen. But as I understand it, you know, th- there were fans that sent in quite a few different names and they all got ignored. They I, Apparently, the brass was wanting Space Cowboys and that's what they got. Don't call them the Space Cowboys. Call them the gangster of love. You don't like Steve yeah. Miller?
0: <laughs> Come on.
1: Oh, well, I love Steve Miller. Right? You know, I'll think of that, I guess. You know, some people call me the Space Cowboy gangster love just call them the sugarland gangsters i mean why
0: not yeah i think i might have screwed that lyric (laughs) up but it was it's something like that and hey umpire joe west there was a a kind of a big story that uh, under the radar this week he retires a few days ago steven do you have a favorite joe west blown astros call or maybe a top 50 list
1: (laughs) um yeah how much time do we have left robert uh the the best story uh, out of joe west that i've ever heard is he retired the other day.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh Joe West we, we're not going to miss Joe West at all. I, no. Yeah.
1: No. Not any more than we'd miss Angel Hernandez or you know guys
0: like that. Yeah, I think Angel Hernandez is like whole other level bad. They're, the yeah. the baseball yeah. players don't there's not the hatred of Joe West as as there is of Angel like Angel Hernandez is like you know, he's a universally yeah. everybody thinks he's terrible and hates him.
1: Well, that's true, but Joe West is. Yeah, you know, I'm telling you, there are plenty of fans that uh, they're not going to be inviting Joe West to their dinner dinner tables anytime soon. But
0: you know, at least Joe Joe, all the stories I heard, he 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 is a good guy as a as umpire. It's a whole other story, but yeah, he's a good guy. You know, you and I forgot to mention this note in our last show. Ron Franklin passed away, and before we talk about Ron, let's uh let's let's have a listen to Ron back in the day. This goes back to. 1985 on Channel 2, KPRC.
2: It's time for sports, and here's Ron Frank. Well, I'm smiling, but as soon as we go to the video, I'm going to do something else. Joe Necro got some help early tonight, which was a change, and then the wheels came off, as the old expression goes. This is in the fifth. These are happy times. Kevin Bass with a home run, Astros lead two to nothing. So
0: there's a little flashback for you, and for younger Houston sports fans, maybe age 39 or under. They know Ron Franklin from as many days as a college football voice on ESPN. But for me, Ron Franklin was a huge part of Houston sports throughout my childhood. He was the voice of the Oilers from 71 to 82. So he was so much a part of those Love You Blue teams. But it wasn't just that. He was the sports director for KHOU Channel 11 from 71 to 80. So all through the 70s. And after that, he took the job as a sports director at Channel 2 KPRC from 1980 to 87. You just heard that. It's hard to explain to younger people, but the news team at Channel 2, Stephen, with Franklin, Ron Stone, and Doug Johnson was about as beloved as any that you'd find in the entire country.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and let me tell you, I may not live in Houston, but I was born there and I grew up there, Robert. And I started following the Oilers in 1972. And Ron Franklin was the radio voice, as you mentioned, you know, with Ron Stone. He he and Ron Stone did that for a number of years. And then Ron went on, of course, you know, to do college football, ESPN, had that unfortunate incident with a female ESPN reporter back in 2011, which ultimately got him fired. But I, you know, I actually, I, I was sad to hear about Ron's passing for a number of reasons, not just because I grew up listening to him and watching him, but I actually had the chance to get to know Ron in the 80s when I was covering UT football and basketball in the mid 80s, mid to late 80s here in Austin. I got to know Ron pretty well, and when he, you know, Ron moved to Austin and was the voice of the Texas Longhorns for a number of years, and even after that when he was at ESPN, he made Austin his home. He was here for many, many years after. And there was one day, it was in the 1987-88 season. I was covering UT basketball for United Press International, and Ron Franklin had me on as a halftime guest when he was doing the uh, Longhorns telecast. And then a couple of years later, I returned the favor. I was a sports director at a radio station, had Ron on my show. He came up to the station and we were on for a good hour. Just a, a really super nice guy. He, you know, as I said, he had some mistakes, you know, with ESPN, but he was just nothing but gracious to me in the time that I knew him. And just a, another voice lost of the many great ones in Houston sports, Robert. Yeah, if you weren't
0: around back then, the, the KPRC team, I think a big part of it wasn't just the news that they did, but let's go to the Jerry Lewis telethon. The Jerry Lewis telethon really personalized that entire news team because they would do that every year. And it wasn't just Jerry Lewis. You would go to the local side and it's, it's Ron, Ron Stone, I mean, and and Franklin would be there and Doug, John, all those guys would be helping out and they would be talking to people coming off the street, giving money, for muscular dystrophy, and you know, you see them with the kids, and it's you know, it's it's going back and forth between the local and national, and 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 I think that personalized them, but there was just other stuff, and there was this down home quality that it really, you know, it 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 was what Houston was at the time, but it was also just perfectly sort of communicated through those. Those guys and, th- and that that uh, whole news team there. And, and Ron Franklin was so much a part of that. And there's, like a, there's a warrant, Stephen, in Ron Franklin's voice that I think was a big part of it, just like there was with Ron Stone. And I think that's where the real connection was.
1: Well, and you talk about chemistry. And Ron Stone and Ron Franklin had that. And not only that, they were best friends. I mean, their families hung out together. I mean, you could just tell by listening to them that they genuinely liked each other off the air, as much as on the air. And those things you were just talking about, Robert, you know, back then, local sports was a lot different than it is now. I mean, there's just so much, you know, with social media, Twitter, and, and so many other things, there there just isn't as much of an emphasis on local sports casts. I mean, they would last a good five to seven minutes back then. Now you're lucky if you get two minutes of, of highlights. So it was just a different era. But let me tell you, it, it brings back a lot of fond memories for me growing up in Houston, watching... And listening to Ron Franklin.
0: And I guess the thing is, when I listen to those guys and where we talk about these great older broadcasters, it's it's why I get frustrated when I watch the NFL or Major League Baseball or the NBA or, you know, in the last few days, the Olympics. And I just get frustrated because, you know, the the warmth of that broadcaster, the, the originality of the voice, um, all of that stuff seems to be really missing from a lot of the broadcasting that we see these days. I'm, I'm watching the opening ceremonies and I don't know if this speaks to necessarily that, but with Mike Tirico, he just seems way over his head. I don't quite understand why he's doing everything for NBC and why he's considered their main guy. You know, he's do, does stuff with the NFL and I, I just, it blows me away because, you know, he just doesn't have the gravitas he doesn't have the likability. He doesn't have the sense of humor that, say, even a Costas or an Al Michaels can incorporate into their, you know, hosting of the Olympics. But, you know, I just I I, I make that connection to the to what's going on in the Olympics right now, because it's just it's really frustrating that, you know, we, we don't see it as much. And we, we have hundreds of millions of people in the United States of America. We should be able to do better then Mike Tirico, perfectly nice guy. And if he's your sports director in Des Moines, Iowa, hey, that's great. But, you know, he, he doesn't he doesn't have the gravitas or the ability, frankly, of somebody that should be the main guy for the Olympics every year.
1: Yeah, you talk about Bob Costas. I mean, I, I just loved watching Bob Costas whenever he was on the Olympics. You talk about a well-rounded guy as, as far as a sportscaster. Bob Costas could do just about anything. It, I think, Robert, what you're saying, it just speaks to the impersonal nature of broadcasting in general. You know, television has become like that. Radio has become like that. It, It's just, there, there is not the personality driven type of person, you know, like the broadcaster that you had with guys, you know, like Bob Costas, Ron Franklin, and guys like that. It's just, Unfortunately, it's a totally different era. You know, people who are growing up now probably don't think anything of it. But people like you and me, Robert, that grew up back then with that personality-driven era, it just, I don't know. For me, it just takes a lot of getting used to. I don't know if you've watched any of the Olympics, but— A little bit. Yeah, I have watched some of it in the last few nights. Just no no
0: Houston angles. There's nobody from—I mean, I checked and checked and checked, and I cannot find anybody from the Houston area in the Olympics it doesn't feel like we have a, a real huge storyline. I guess if you're a big Sean White fan, and I, I don't know if I've really gotten into a lot of the extreme sports. You know, I I love watching the figure skating, but I don't think there's anybody that's kind of grabbing hold of America on the figure skating area. You've got Michaela Schifrin, and then first uh time down the hill. She doesn't make it. So she's immediately out of, uh, I think, what what was that? The uh, Super G or something like that? Yeah,
1: it's uh, downhill, the Alpine. Yeah. And yeah, Michaela Schiffern. And that was somebody I was really pulling for. You know, she lost her father a couple of years ago. And, you know, it was one of those stories where you just pulled so hard for her to win it for him and to see what happened to her. Just, yeah, it just broke my heart. You know, with the Winter Olympics, yeah, you're probably not going to find quite as many people with a Houston or Texas connection. I mean, they may have been here at one time, perhaps. They may have been born
0: here. Yes. Something tells me you're saying that we just don't have enough uh, snow in Houston. I I can't believe you're telling me this. this, This is breaking news.
1: Well, you know what we could do, Robert, is what a lot of places are doing and even Beijing is having to do. We just need to bring in a lot of artificial snow in Houston. And then, you know, we could just have it all year round and people can... Practice their skiing or their snowboarding or cross-country skiing, luge, you know that kind of stuff. bobsledding. just put a bunch of uh, fake snow down there, and you'd have it made. We've got fake snow
0: in, in places that you can put around Houston, and and uh, we had a we had a nice course set up last year. Remember in Houston, uh, sh- yeah. sh- shut down the entire state. So of Texas. did we
1: <laughs> here in Austin.
0: <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it's uh, it, it's it's missing that. Big angle so far the Olympics, and hopefully we'll have something. And uh, you know, Schifrin's got a bunch more races, so don't don't get too sad. And she's got some medals already under her belt in, in the Olympics, so I, I, she's going to be okay. The figure skating, I, I really enjoy, and I have this deep connection with my mom because that was her favorite sport, and is the one one of the two sports really the gymnastics and figure skating that I could. Really talked to her about because she she loved them so much. You know, most of that stuff she just she wasn't following the Rockets or the Astros or the Texans. She would get excited about them for me, but she really wasn't watching the games.
1: Yeah, it, it, you know, in the Olympics, it, it is one of those things where it, you kind of bring a connection with people that don't not normally watch sports. I mean, I talk to people all the time that you'll never catch them watching a football, a baseball, basketball, hockey game, but when the Olympics come on. Oh, they're right there through the whole time. And, you know, one of my jobs, Robert, is I actually do some writing for Team USA. I don't cover Olympic sports. I've, I've been covering mostly Paralympics. But it's taught me a lot about some of these other sports that I really didn't follow so much before until I started, uh, you know, working with them. And it's just nice to kind of get to know the athletes. They're, you know, they're real people. And you know, just like the rest of us, they have stories and they have so much pressure because they train for so many years for one moment. And it's either going to go really well or it's going to flop. And, you know, that's where you kind of feel for them when things don't work out. You mentioned that Michaela Schifrin story. and You talk
0: about what you did. And this is something that you're too smart to do. And I'm too smart to do because I actually have produced feature stories for almost 30 years. But in the Michaela Schifrin story, I couldn't believe this. They kept talking about her dad being a photographer and shooting everything that she would do out right. there on the slope and he the guy took a camera everywhere and they, they talked about it throughout the story and they talked about what great shots he would get and in the entire story they had one shot that you saw that he took and that shot they, they basically showed the video on the screen was a was a distant shot of a, a picture that was framed so they didn't even get the whole <laughs> filled up screen with the picture in it And I was just like, wait a second, you just did a whole story on the guy telling me that he takes, they were showing him all these shots of him holding the camera and they're talking about what a good, good photographer he was. And you you didn't show me a shot that he did of, his of, of you got, I got one sort of Michaela Schifrin shot that he took and that was it.
1: Yeah, that is interesting, but no, he was a top flight photographer and yeah, he went with her, but you know, he was working it; he was taking all kinds of pictures, but yeah, why you never saw them in that story. I'm not exactly sure why. Unreal, but
0: uh, looking forward to watch. I'll still watch the Olympics, and if something comes up, we'll we'll. It's fun. We'll discuss it on here. And we got the uh, definitely got the the trade deadline coming up in a couple of days. I might have a guest. I might try to get a guest on Thursday. I, I'm not going to promise you, but I might try to get us a, a guest if I can uh, after the deadline. Hope you guys have a good week. And until next time, let's get some wins, Rockets. How about that?